and welcome to the Rituals for Liberation podcast. I'm your host, Fanny Priest. I believe that the massive changes needed to secure justice and wellness for all of the world's inhabitants are possible when our healers and changemakers are deeply resourced, fully embodied, and answering their calling from a place of self-trust. In this podcast, I'll be talking to folks about the daily rituals that allow them to do their big, world-changing work responsibly and sustainably. My hope is that these conversations will help to make sure that the revolution is resourced. And now, on to today's show. Hello, Bear. Welcome to the podcast. It's so lovely to have you here. It is so lovely to be here. Um, if you're willing, we're going to start with a short centering um, so that you and I can co-regulate. And if you're listening, you can join to the degree that you are able and willing. So if it feels okay for you, I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. If you prefer, you can keep just a soft gaze uh, down onto the floor in front of you. I'm gonna invite you to bring your awareness into the parts of your body that are making contact with support. And if it feels good, I'm gonna invite you to maybe place your hands down onto your thighs for a little bit more grounding energy. So if you have your seat on something, you can feel your sitting bones maybe shifting side to side. If your feet are touching support, you can just kind of wiggle them so that you notice how and where you're connected to gravity. And then maybe let a little bit more of the weight of your body release into those points of contact so that you feel yourself rooted and grounded. And then opening your senses, opening your awareness to receive any sound that is around you. Just receiving the sound as it is. And then opening the senses to receive um, sensation at the skin. So that might be the temperature of the touch of the air on your skin. Might be the layers that are touching your body, your clothing, any textures. And then just noticing your own sort of like internal world and welcoming yourself to this moment just as you are. Nothing needing to be assessed or fixed or changed or understood. It's simply witnessed and welcomed with compassion and curiosity. All right. And open your eyes whenever you're ready. All right. So Bear, would you please introduce yourself, letting us know who you are, what pronouns you use, and then tell us a little bit about the work that you do and how you help people. Great. Um, yeah, my name is Bear Abear. Uh, I use they and them pronouns. Um, I am a, a life coach and a business consultant um, and a social justice educator. Um, I work with uh, 
human beings who are trying to figure out how to uh, bring their life into greater alignment with uh, a vision for liberation um, in a whole variety of ways. <laughs> That's awesome. And a beautiful segue into the next question, which is what does, what does liberation mean to you? What is your vision for liberation for the world? Oh, I love this question. I love to talk about liberation. <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, for me, liberation uh, really means like freedom from uh, systems of oppression, um, freedom of autonomy, freedom of choice, freedom uh, to uh, to be our our whole true selves. Um, to me, liberation is also about interconnectedness and interdependence. Um, so I think sometimes we can think of freedom as being like individualistic or like uh, that I'm, I'm, I alone am, am my, you know, I alone am, am freedom or something. Uh, but to me, liberation is really about, uh, about a collective, uh, it's a collective effort towards it. And it's a collective um, future that I'm aiming towards that at least my work is, and my work and many other people's work is, is pointing towards. Um, yeah, and I, I think that the other thing about liberation and the definition of it that I hold is is one in which um, we all get to be our, our right size in the world, um, mm. that nobody has to be uh, made smaller uh, in order to, smaller than they truly are in order for, for all of us to, to find liberation. And that's a little tricky because systems of oppression have given some of us a whole lot more space than others of us. Um, so sometimes... Uh, it may require us to take up less space than we are allowed, but I don't believe that it means we have to take up less space than we truly are, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, I'm really fascinated by um, by this take on liberation about taking, you know, the, the right amount of space because taking up space is a phrase that's very much on my mind is where... Um, at the time of this recording and what this is released will be in 2020, which from the tarot perspective is an emperor year. And the emperor for me is really about taking up space. And so, yeah, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about sort of what that means for you and what that means for the people that you work with to sort of assess what are the ways in which we have been limited in the space that we take up and how do we work to to counter that and to find what is our it feels to me like it might be like an amorphous process right of like okay I'm gonna try taking up this much space okay that doesn't feel good okay this doesn't feel good it's kind of like a, a Goldilocks kind of just right situation yeah so. absolutely um yeah, I think a lot about, I really have to find the attribution of this quote. It's from a zine uh, called All That Glitters Is Not Gold. That's um, uh, working class people writing about class issues. Um, and, and I should say first that I'm a, uh, I'm a white person who is assigned female and identifies as non-binary, um, but definitely move through the world with uh, some sort of like cis passing privilege. People often perceive me as a woman. Uh, and this quote from from this text, uh, from this this zine, this essay in a zine, um, 
it's a woman writing about uh, a white woman writing about her young white daughter uh, and they're you know navigating public transit in a major city and her little girl is you know sometimes quite loud and rambunctious on the bus or whatever and she's describing how she wants uh, she wants her kid to figure out how to take up the right amount of space in the world which is uh, more than the patriarchy would allow her but less than white supremacy would have her believe. And I think about that all the time that like, oh, right, that is the, that is the sort of shifting space that I am always trying to navigate of like, how am I taking up, how, how am I noticing the places where patriarchy would have me be small and pushing against that and getting big. And then also at the same time, noticing the places that white supremacy would have me be bigger than I should be, louder than I should be, more access than I should have. And how do I like, ease back from that, pull back from that and become more right-sized, right? So when I think about right-sizing, it sometimes it means getting bigger, sometimes it means getting smaller. And, uh, and you know, and those are just two pieces of everybody's varying identities, right? So um, wherever you fall in that, in that kind of, in the, you know, the, the constellation of demographic identities, um, I think we're always sort of trying to navigate those, those boundaries. And I think you're really right that it is a Goldilocks kind of thing. It's a it's a moving target, right? Because yeah, exactly. What, and also that like what is appropriate in one space may not be appropriate in a different space. What's appropriate in one group of people may be different in a different group of people. Um, and so it is. There is no sort of like oh here it is. Here's the right. You know, I'm <laughs> I'm this. You know, I'm this size. And here you know it's it's um it's definitely a. Uh, a shifting, a shifting practice, you know, a practice yeah. of, of being in the flow of things. And what I love about it too, is that it's not, um, it, as you were saying, it's really about our, our identities as defined within the collective, right? So this is not the, the, the proper amount of space for you to take up in the world. It's not something that you get to figure out by yourself sitting in your living room, right? Like it's going to, it's going to depend on who you're interacting with and who's applying, you know, who's applying force to some degree, um, you know, to the outside, but that, yeah, it is going to shift depending on who is around you. Right. And so it really kind of, um, I love it because it's very relational. And so it very much fits into that, that idea that liberation is very much like a collective goal, which you, you know, stated at the beginning, right? The freedom is not just about me being free to do whatever I want, which I feel is a very, a very American idea. I'm Canadian and I've been here for, you know, about a dozen years, but it's still, um, it's still very weird for me that, you know, that, that definition of that definition of freedom or that, that, that particular take on freedom. Um, yeah, I really like this idea a lot. Um, so more, can you get a little bit more granular letting us know how does the work that you do with individuals sort of fit into this, this vision of, of liberation? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think my work these days is, is sort of in three parts. Um, I do life coaching, uh, which is in some ways like the easiest to describe. It's just sort of like I help people figure out how to um, bring their, their lives and their behaviors and their practices and their habits like more in line with their own ideals. Um, that's, that's one piece of it. Um, and there it's often really... Uh, well, I, I guess I'll describe, yeah. So in my business consulting work, um, I'm 
basically doing the same thing, but with business owners. And my business clients tend to be sort of in two camps. A majority of them are people who already have sort of like um, liberation ideals, really. Uh, they have like a strong analysis about social justice. They understand those things. And uh, sometimes those ideals are getting in their w- in their way, like in the way of their ability to actually like make enough money to live a sustainable life, <laughs> right? Which isn't about amassing wealth, but just about being able to um, to to live. Uh, which inside of capitalism, we all we all need a certain amount of money to live. Um, and sometimes uh, those ideals can become a barrier to being able to actually make enough money. That's like one camp of my clients. And then my other camp of, of business clients, uh, who I also really love working with, are folks who um, maybe are newer to thinking about social justice or newer to um, confronting their own privilege, but have built really successful businesses, um, often uh, without a lot of awareness about those those issues. And, and so then they're sort of coming to these, um, you know, having these wake up moments uh, and going like, oh no, like, uh, is my business might be causing harm, you know, or the way I'm, I'm doing business maybe could be, um, if it's not causing harm outright, like it maybe could be doing more towards the greater good. Um, and so in all of those cases, I feel like really what I'm doing with folks is, um, is helping them to, to get really crystal clear about, uh, what their intentions are and to really, um, then to bring their behavior into greater and greater alignment, to bring their business policies, their like daily life actions into greater and greater alignment with some kind of vision for liberation. Um, and, you know, I, uh, I had a call this week with a client where we talked about, um, you know, how he described himself as not being like a burn it all down uh, revolutionary in the kind of way that I might consider myself <laughs> to be. Um, but that but that I really have, and I've learned this from, you know, and I've learned all of the things that I'm talking about from like deeply rooted communities, you know, multiracial communities where people have really taught me so much, but um, I've really learned like from those spaces that it takes a diversity of tactics, um, right? So I, I, feel, I feel really uh, at home with folks who are working towards liberation in a variety of ways, right? So, um, so that's been really, really great and really fun. And then, um, yeah, and then this sort of like side note to my work is that currently I'm teaching men about undoing patriarchy, um, and that's that's sort of like a whole other side project that I do where I, um, yeah, I teach classes to to men to help them learn relational and emotional skills um, that have been uh, denied to them because of patriarchal systems that that say that men aren't allowed to have feelings. So, um, yeah, I teach men how to feel their feelings. <laughs> oh man, I mean, bless you, like. That is so right there oh man I have like a dozen questions about each of those um the one that really strikes me is this idea that you know liberation consciousness can be an obstacle for people in making money and it's something that I've become that I've realized I've observed in myself which is that you know this patriarchal idea of not like this imperative inside of patriarchy, you know, for, for women identifying folks to only take up a certain amount of space. I think that even once we cast this idea aside or try to actively work against it, I've noticed for me that I can take liberation work and social justice work and ideals and actually use those 
to make myself smaller in the sense that who am I to be speaking? And, you know, like I'm sitting here with a whole bunch of imposter complex as a, you know, as a, as a white, you know, cis female and, you know, straight presenting female, cause I'm, you know, married to a cis man about like, who am I to talk about this work? Right. And so I feel like a lot of us are in that space. How, how do you speak to that? Yeah, that's such a, uh, it's such it's such deep work and it it relates i mean sort of directly back to this this idea of like always trying to navigate like what is the right space for, what is the right amount of space for me to take up in the in the world and um it's tricky you know because um <laughs> because like the the public and sort of the public of the internet is not a neutral space right and and so uh who has access to uh, to that space is is absolutely informed by class and race and gender. Um, you know, there's all of this stuff coming out about uh, the algorithms being biased towards you know straight white men. Which like, who is that surprising? Surprise! Yeah. <laughs> no one is shocked. Literally, um, not a single person. Yeah, but that but that we're. Um, yeah, I think that it's it's for me it's really about figuring out like what is the sphere of influence that I have? Who are the people that I have access to and then what is the right work for me to do with the people that I have access to? Um and I, I think about that a lot. That was a a big sort of question for me in the last like five years or so of like, okay, if I know, you know, for instance, okay, so also I'm an artist and I make theater work and I'm a writer and I do I write who does or do you know anyone who doesn't have like seven yeah multi-passionate that's what all of us are right yeah, multi-passionate <laughs> I know that's like the the um the like online business space uh, yes. for that right so but in my theater work we realized you know like uh if our audience is uh you know 90 percent white people what do we want to do with that if we're like a company of if we're a theater company of people that is like mostly white people and we're making work for mostly white people. What is the conversation that I want to have in that space about liberation? What is the agenda that I want to try to push forward with those people? And, you know, there's, it, I think we, we can get kind of like hung up on um, like diversity as a value uh, or like diversity as a thing to, uh, to sort of like aim for, or a, a, like a, a thing to prioritize. And um, I think it's Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, uh, who's a really great uh, black author, scholar person, um, but she talks about um, diversity as like the end result of a committed liberation practice that like when you become committed to liberation work, that then your world inevitably becomes more diverse. And I think sometimes this question of like, how do I, am I allowed to take up space? Am I allowed to do this work? It's like, well, who are the people you have access to? What is the work that you're doing? And I think sometimes as white people, it can feel really, um, yeah, it can feel sort of wrong to be like, oh, I'm actually just a white person doing work with other white people. But I think that that's also part of what is necessary, right? When I talked before about like a diversity of tactics, it's like some of what is needed is white people who are like really pushing this agenda of like dismantling white supremacy with other white people. And that's, that is also, it's not the only work that we have to do, right? Because also there has to be support for and lifting up of voices of color and people of color and really like tending to those needs as well. But that, um, but that this work too is part of the, part of the puzzle, right? So thinking about how, um, 
yeah, how our liberation consciousness like uh, can get in the way of feeling like it's appropriate for us to take up space where it's like, oh, well, if I care about justice, I should just like be small and sit back and not not get involved, right? And I'm like, hmm, I don't, I'm not sure that that's the, <laughs> no. you know, we should be, we should be intentional and we should work in accountability with people of color and we should be, you know, uh, relational in the way that we're working, but not doing the work out of fear of taking up too much space, I think is, is um, for part, it's, it's the, it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. And I think that, you know, very much the systems of oppression that we're actively trying to work against very much depend on our imposter complex, right? Like if I feel that I'm not good enough to speak out against these issues and to actively work against them, um, then nothing changes, right? Like, and so this is kind of one of the ways that the system kind of works to reinforce itself. You know, I really love this idea of, you know, speaking to who's showing up, right? Like, as opposed to, I think that you're right. I think that for, for a lot of us, this idea of diversity and inclusivity being kind of an end in and of itself that we should, try, that we should strive for. And that, that sense of like, oh, if I, if, if all that I'm speaking to, you know, if everybody who's in the room with me is white, am I, am I doing something wrong? And and I'm, there may be the case and there may be an exploration there, but I think, but, but the judging, we have something to say to everybody who's there. And also being a white person, I'm probably most qualified to talk to other people who are white. But I like this idea that the diversity in your space being a byproduct and a result of really earnest, honest work that you're doing. It's kind of like we're trying to put the cart before the horse, right? Like if the people are in the room in front of me, then it tells me that like I'm doing the, I'm doing the right or appropriate work. And it's like, well, you know, talk to who's showing up and, and who is showing up is going to let you know, you know, like where you're at and what the work that you're doing. So yeah, this is really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I really feel that. Um, yeah. Car before the horse is, is sort of exactly right. Um, the other thing that, it, that this question and this, this conversation is making me think of is just the, the way that um, what you were saying about imposter syndrome, about uh, being able to embrace imperfection is really, uh, is really so crucial. And I know, of course, like Brene Brown writes about imperfection all the time and stuff. Um, but I, I think a lot about perfectionism as a facet of white supremacy, white supremacy culture, right? That's in um, uh, the essay that's called White Supremacy Culture. That's from Tema Okun, which is from Dismantling Racism. The website is drworks.com, I think, or drworks.org. Um, just dropping all the resources in this Yeah, podcast. we're going to, I'm, I'm like thinking through like, oh my God, I'm going to do show notes because we're going to need links to all of these. <laughs> Great. Um, but yeah, in that essay, they, they make this sort of list about like how white supremacy shows up in workplace culture, but it's also true of sort of all culture, you know, all of the ways that we're engaging with each other, but that perfectionism is a real value of white supremacy. And I think um, when we internalize that, it can make us feel like, well, if I, if I say, I don't want to speak out because I don't want to say the wrong thing. You know, I don't want to, well, I don't want to say anything because like, what if it's, what if it's not right for me to do this or that thing? And um I think it's really uh, 
it's really important for us to be become willing to take imperfect action and to face the consequences of our own imperfection. <laughs> like that's to me, that's like what really like being being willing to like put yourself on the line and put your own um, like internal sense of self as a good white person and like your external like uh, reputation as a good white person on the line uh, in order to be able to like actually do the work. Um, yeah, and you know, I was um, in a coaching call. I work with um, Sarah M. Chapel for business coaching, and you know what she was saying is that actual imposters don't ask themselves whether they have the right to speak on a specific issue, right? <laughs> like they just don't. Like if you're an actual imposter, you're not going to wonder, am I the right person to speak? So just by definition, if you're having these questions and if you're having these hangups and you're, if you're giving yourself that pause of then by definition, you're not an imposter, right? But I think you're right. Like the willingness to be wrong and the willingness to take risks for, you know, to stand up for our values and to stand up for the world that we want to live in. And really, which is, you know, the, the willingness to be, to be called in, but you know, how else do we grow, but then to make a mistake and being like, okay, so that didn't work. Okay. So I fucked that one up, but then, you know, but then that's how, that's how, that's how we grow as people. And really that allows us to become models for what it's like to change our minds. I think that we don't have a lot of that in our culture, right? Of what does it look like to, to, to hold a certain position and then to, and then to pivot through interaction mm -hmm. with other people. There's just not a lot of, like, we're all so entrenched. I'm like, I'm over here and I'm over there. And this is, and this is the right group of people to be in. And this is the, you know, this is the wrong group of people to be in. And we don't have a lot of models for what it means to shift and evolve in a public way. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, yeah. It makes me think of, and I don't know who, I can't quote who wrote this uh, off the top of my head, but there's another, um, another piece of writing about uh, that's called like the white identity ladder, uh, or maybe it's called like the racial identity, racial identity formation ladder or something like that. But it's basically like what happens for white people whenever you start to realize that white supremacy is a thing. Um, and there's like a real sort of linear, and, and of course it's not totally linear, right? But there's a real, uh, there's a real path that I can trace in my own self when I look at like, okay, when did I start waking up to whiteness? When did I start waking up to white supremacy? And that, you know, at first there's this sort of denial and then there's, um, there's like real anger at self and others and this sort of like self-righteous posturing of like, I'm good and you're bad. Um, and we've all seen that because we've all been that, right? <laughs> oh, I remember that. <laughs> exactly. Where you're, you, you know, that's, it's, uh, it's, it's just part of the process. And then like over time, uh, the knowledge of our own, you know, complicity within the system uh, becomes more integrated, becomes more, it's like, I'm not, uh, I don't accept, uh, I'm always working to fight against my own complicity in the system. And I also simultaneously accept that, like, I will always still benefit from white supremacy. I will always still inevitably be messing up at some point and, and need to be called in yet again. You know, I will always need to be redirected towards, I will always have to keep pivoting. And I think that to me is really the, um, 
that's like really one of the like key key most crucial skills of like what does it look like to be in it what what is it what do you need to know what do you need to know how to do in order to like do liberation work I'm like oh you have to know that you're always going to keep messing up and you have to like be well enough inside yourself to mess up and keep going anyway um and it may you know and, and to me like I've learned that not from some like internal moment of an enlightenment but from being in community with people who said you messed up and I'm not throwing you away like you messed up and I still want to be with you like you messed up and and we still want you here you're still valuable you know and so to me that like part of the the trickiness of like internet activism is that we don't get those like we often don't get those kind of long-term deep in-person interactions where we have the chance to like do it wrong and co-regulate back together towards repair you know um, because like what I, all, all I really want is like a community of people who are willing to like get their hands dirty and be in the mud with me and like be imperfect together and like trust that we're all trying to, to move in the right direction. Well, that really points to, you know, the, again, the, the, the community aspect of this inner healing. Right. And so first there's the, there's the awareness. I think that when we come into this consciousness of waking up to whiteness, as, as you said, as you said, um, at first it feels really personal. I think that's where a lot of the anger is, right? Cause we feel personally called out and we had no idea. It's kind of like walk is like, why did nobody tell me I had this huge piece of spinach in my teeth, right? And I've been walking around with it for like 40 years and then realizing that, oh, this is a collective, there's this collective issue, right? And then and then that kind of, that, that shifts the onus of responsibility a little bit to, this is not a, I am wrong. This is a, oh, this is a systemic thing and I'm a part of this system. But I also love the piece that you bring about co-regulation. And I think that it really points to, you know, the root of the fear of speaking out is the, is the fear of being cast out, right? Which is the, which is that primordial fear. But the thing is, most of us didn't, most of us did not have those experiences of repair, right? In our, in our early childhood experiences of what it was like to, to, to not be of the norm. And there was a sense of immediate rejection and there wasn't that process of reintegration. So in a lot of ways, not only are we working to um, dismantle these systems of oppression, but we're doing it at the same time as trying to learn those repairing skills and repairing sort of like our own trauma of what it feels like to be cast out and and to not have I love that phrase that you use you messed up but I'm not willing to throw you away I think that most of us are missing the felt somatic experience of that second piece right that if I mess up I'm not going to get thrown away yeah yeah that's really I mean that that punitive way of being is like baked into the system at all levels so that's happening to us interpersonally like in in day-to-day life in relationships in internet fights that we're having in the comments mm-hmm. section it's happening there but it's also I mean like that is what the prison industrial system is based upon that's what the carceral that's what like carceral ways of, of thinking and being are, are based upon where it's it's like uh you did bad and therefore you're cast out right it's like why we have uh, so many people in prison it's why you know we it's it's why we have the discipline systems that we have in schools mm-hmm. and that whole um that idea that like you're allowed to you're allowed to mess up and we and we know how to reintegrate you into society like we don't we don't have those skills as a culture we don't have those skills as a people um and of course there are people doing like marvelous amazing 
imaginative exploratory work in restorative justice and transformative justice. And, um, you know, I, I believe in a future free from prisons. And, you know, I, I like, I, I have, I, I think it's, I think we're heading in that direction, but like where we are right now is like, we're really traumatized. We're traumatized individually from our childhoods. We're traumatized from the systems of oppression that we live inside of. And that's true for all of us, right? Like, even if you sit at the top of the systems, even if you sit at the top of the pyramid, you are still traumatized. I learned this over and over again with the men that I work with that like being a straight, rich, white man does not prevent you from being traumatized, right? Because it, it, it is inherently dehumanizing to sit up at the top of, a, of the pyramid, you know, to sit um, disconnected from other, being disconnected from others requires a disconnection from self. And so, you know, the, the, there's no winners in the system. No, nobody, I, nobody's coming out ahead. I mean, some people are coming out ahead in, in it's it, privilege exists. Right. And I'm not saying it doesn't, the, the, there are like tangible real life ways that people are getting ahead. And also nobody wins. This also is those people are still miserable, like clearly, like visibly, right? Like, um, you know, we're talking about repair and not having the repair skills. I think that we also are are lacking and 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 need to be growing the repair skills with ourselves. And that's kind of where I want to shift the conversation, because really, you know, what I'm interested in talking about is okay. We have these visions for for liberation, which is exciting and energizing, and also, quite frankly, um, exhausting. <laughs> Right? Like, and so, you know, m most of us who are in, in, in the healing space or in the facilitating space are sort of teetering somewhere on the edge of burnout. Um, and so what I want to ask you, right, is how, so you as a human, right, like bear as a human with a body, right, and, and, and a life outside of their work, what are the challenges that you face from doing the work that you do? I love this question. I especially love this question in this moment because yesterday I had a really long client day, which I, I sort of messed up my, um, my scheduling app. And then I ended up with, uh, I ended up with six, six clients yesterday. Um, I know, including two 90 minute calls. And I, um, so I was working like sort of nonstop all day yesterday. And, uh, it really uh, put into very sharp focus for me, like why I have the boundaries that I do around the way that I work. <laughs> um, because the, uh, the reality is like, that's actually not, it's not sustainable to be that emotionally attuned and present to other people for that many hours. I could, I could do it for one day, um, but I can't do that every day. Uh, at all. I really can't do that every day at all. Um, you know, and so I think like on, on the big picture, when I think about burning out and like liberation work, I think about, um, the quote from Rabbi Tarfan that says, you know, uh, do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief, right? Like it's, um, do your, do your right work now. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing this badly, but the gist of it is like, uh, the work is not yours to complete, but neither is it yours to abandon, right? So like, when I think about like, what is the big picture of the work that I'm trying to do? It's like, okay, I know that this is lifetime work. I know that this is, this is work that I have to, uh, to keep doing for the entirety of the time that I'm alive. And sometimes that can feel really daunting. 
And also I have to remember, again, it's about right-sizing, like not taking on responsibility for saving the whole world, but also being right-sized about the fact that I do have influence and I do have agency and there is some power that I have to enact change in myself, in my relationships, in the work that I do with my clients, with my students, um, and really being able to, to sort of uh, to do the work that I can do while not feeling overwhelmed by the work that is not mine to do. Um, which is hard because it really requires a lot of trust in other people. Um, it requires that other people are also going to show up and do their jobs, which for someone like me who tends to be a little bit um, controlling uh, and wants to sort of have a hand in everything uh, can be really, really challenging to just be like, I'm just trusting that other people are also showing up and doing their work every day. Um, and it can feel hard to not feel overwhelmed by like the, the hugeness of it all of like, the the 24-hour news cycle and the you know the the enormity of the world's grief you know like he says that and it's just like oh yeah it is the world's grief is enormous <laughs> and it's not my job to like solve all of it I don't have to I don't have to fix all of that but I do have to show up and do the work that's mine to do I felt my system sort of like downshift when you said that like just like oh Oh, there's there's a heaviness, but there's kind of like a, a relief. And I think that, yeah, like this concept of right size shows up here again, just like right, right size, sort of like the right size of our responsibility, I think is such a, you know, which really speaks to boundaries, right, which is such a huge part of, uh, of making the world that the work that we do sustainable. Um, I'm interested in this in this question of trust, right, because there is if, if I'm going to trust that the work that is showing up in front of me is the work that is, you know, right and appropriate for me to do. I need to trust in other people to do their bit, right? And there's a whole bunch of stuff that's involved in that. Um, I've been realizing for myself how much um, how much trust in in spirit is required mm -hmm. of me to to do this work as well, because. I have a tendency to make it really all about me and my ability. And am I, am I, am I good enough? And am I doing enough? And am I doing the right things? And which is really a big focus on me, right? And then realizing how much, like how the, how the proportions need to shift, how much I rely on me and how much I'm relying on spirit. Um, are you willing to, to speak a little bit to that? How, how spirit factors into, to this idea of trust? Yeah. Yeah, I really, um, you know, my relationship with God, spirit, the divine, however you want to call it, the universe, uh, is complicated. And I would say that at, at today, <laughs> uh, today, I don't really have a belief in like a, a greater force um, beyond the sort of collective beingness of, of who's here. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so when I think about trusting that other, others are showing up to the work, like to me, that goes beyond the human realm. And I'm like, I, you know, I work with plant medicine. So I like really believe that the plants are showing up to, I, uh, to, to help us and to, to heal us and to heal themselves in our ecosystem. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, I just have to trust that we're we're all sort of 
maybe not all of us, <laughs> but that the, 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 the collective is aiming towards, uh, towards its own healing. You know, I think about the, the quote from MLK that he quoted from someone else, right? But the, the, the arc, the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. And I hold that as like a real sort of balm to my soul that I'm like, okay, I believe that. I believe that the arc of the moral universe is bending towards justice. I believe that we are, um, that we are moving in the direction of like a more just, a more liberated world. Um, and also I believe that like the bending is ours to do, right? That like we, that as people who care about justice, as people who are invested in liberation, that uh, that the, the arc doesn't bend on its own. <laughs> and so, yeah, thinking about that question of, of like, of trust, I think for me, a lot of it, I feel much more trusting whenever my sense of responsibility gets a little smaller and my sense of my own power gets a little bigger. And then I feel sort of more able to be in right-sized relationship with other humans, other creatures, other beings um, that were, you know, that there is, that there is a force towards, uh, towards liberation that's, that's at work in the world. My, uh, my favorite phrase for God, spirit, the universe, whatever, is just a larger container, mm. right? And that, you know, in order for us to do the work, it really has to be about something bigger than ourselves. And the idea that as, as space holders, right, like we need to have something that is holding space for us that we're leaning back into. And, and I love that you brought, you know, like a belief in justice to me, that's like, that's a beautiful larger container. That is something that is bigger than you and 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 bigger than all of us, but something that I can is a true value and you know, like a true, I don't know, like as you know, justice is a tarot card. Like for me, that's an archetype that feels very much alive in the world. Um and I and I love that you bring in this idea of trust, uh, trust that plants are showing up, right? I think it's so easy to be so. Um, I'm probably going to mangle this world. This word, as I say, it, anthropocentric. Was that? Yeah, I'm French Canadian. <laughs> That's my first language. So sometimes words that have like Latin roots kind of come out a little bit weird. Yeah, I think um, that was great. But um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I either the in my in my big anguish about climate change. I think for me, the moment that the first moment that I came to any kind of relaxation. In, in with this reality, um, be, I do believe we need to have some form of relaxation because we're constantly on high alert about it. Like there's like, we're not useful for anything or anyone, but it was to realize that the, oh, the earth is gonna go on without us. Like the earth will be fine. <laughs> you know, like that it, it doesn't need us. And, and, it, and, it, and it, it does, like we're in relationship now, but that if we all go away, that the earth will carry on. And for some reason that was really soothing to me. Um, so, so yeah, yay for plant allies. Um, speaking of which, so can you speak a little bit about what are the daily rituals that you use to keep you grounded, nourished, inspired to show up into your work? Like what does a day of tending look like for you around your work? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it's really simple. <laughs> My rituals have gotten simpler and simpler over time. Um, I was a yoga practitioner for 12 years and a yoga teacher for nine of those 12 years. Um, and for a long time, that was sort of my, uh, the central piece of my 
daily tending of my ritual type practice. Um, and like a year, a year and a little bit ago, I, I left the world of yoga um, in, in large part because uh, I finally sort of came came awake about the fact that uh, that cultural appropriation is really uh, a harmful force at work in the world and that my teaching and benefiting from that appropriation was really uh, doing more harm than it was good, um, which has been, uh, yeah, it was a real sort of moment of reckoning for me like 18 months or so ago where I, I realized that, okay, if I'm not going to do this anymore, then what is there? And there was a real sort of, um, there was grief around it, but more than that, there was a sort of bewilderment of like, well, if not this, then what? Um, because I think, you know, for white people, we've been so disconnected from deep spiritual practice, uh, for, a really long time uh and you know if you my family is also uh french uh although by way of france and uh, acadia right so uh nova scotia but um i live in south louisiana we're cajun and so catholicism is definitely a big piece of the puzzle in terms of my like ancestral practices but as i walked away from yoga practice as a thing to sustain me and I knew sort of Catholicism wasn't the, wasn't the right thing for me either um, because of its own sort of history of uh, domination and colonization and whatnot uh, that there was a real sort of like just this empty space of, of like now I don't know what else to do um, and it's been really cool actually over the course of the last year and a half or so of figuring out what it looks like to, to try to have practices that come from my own lineage, that come from, uh, that, that aren't you know, taken from other people's practices uh, and to, to try to try those on as ways of tending and finding that in fact, they are uh, just as effective as the, as the practices that I was doing before and, um, that in some ways I feel uh, even more connected to myself and to, to the larger container, as you say, I love that phrase, uh, through, through things that aren't also complicit in, uh, you know, in upholding systems of oppression, that there's just like something uh, energetically uh, clearer about engaging in these really simple practices. So, I mean, to, to be really specific about yeah, it, it's like tea every day. I like turn on the fire on my stove and I heat water in a kettle and I put herbs into a pot and, you know, into a teapot and I steep the, the plants, you know, and it's plants that I know, plants that I have a relationship with. Many of them are plants that are ancestral to me and to the, you know, to the lands that my people come from in Europe. Um, and I drink that plant medicine. And to me, that's like a big piece of, of the, of the story. Um, I go outside, I go for like long, slow walks through my neighborhood. <laughs> I, I'm friends with, I'm becoming friends with the trees and the birds and the, you know, the other creatures who live, you know, and I live in a city. So, so connecting to nature can be a challenge, but just, uh, finding moments and ways to connect, uh, to what's what is available to me um, feels really good. 
Um, I keep an altar, you know, you can't see it. It's slightly off screen here, but and people who are listening to the podcast definitely can't see it, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I, I burn candles and I have, uh, you know, pictures of my ancestors and I write intentions on the moon cycles and uh, I burn plants that are not white sage or Palo Santo, you know, like I, I, I do, I'm, I'm doing these like really simple things that just feel really, uh, like I, 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 now I like look back at that, that sort of hole that was left whenever I stepped away from yoga practice and, and I just sort of go like, wow, what, what a failure of imagination to, to not be able to see beyond the thing that, you know, it's like, oh, if you want like an embodied physical, if you want an embodied spiritual practice and you're like, oh person living in the United States in this time it's like well the cho- the choice is like yoga or yoga um yeah. and to to really find uh that that's just another way that we've been sort of like sold a bill of goods that like the only option for white people is to like continue to participate in and perpetuate white supremacy and I just go like that's not true about spiritual practice it's not true it's just not true in so many ways but it really requires one, a willingness to sort of put down uh, what we think we know, put down what we what we think we we are entitled to, and then to to really um, turn away from that and to like see what else is there. So, I just as you know, I'm completely fascinated by by the story and this conversation, and um, I think that interrogating the world of yoga, if you're a part of it, is absolutely necessary and that we may come out on you know different sides of what that ends up looking like um but the the phrase that really strikes me is when you say like failure of of imagination and I think that that's so true and that's why I'm so grateful to you for just sharing like practically what that looks like because I think that as you say like we are so devoid of real tangible relationship to 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 the earth and to these spiritual practices right because we're so because generationally it just hasn't been a connection and so that yeah like I feel like that that failure of imagination might be a big stumbling block for a lot of people who are maybe coming into that point in in their in their journey with their spiritual practice where they realize oh wait maybe there is something weird about about me being engaged in these practices but if I can't see anything else around me and most of most of the time if we turn around and and look around we'll see like you mentioned the sage and the Palo Santo right like that's another sort of apprenticeship that I you know another consciousness that I've had to come into which is like oh okay so I've picked up these and then it was like oh wait this isn't you know this isn't mine you know either um and I think that the interrogation is so difficult because we are finding a connection and that connection is really important and there's a sense of but what if I put this down is there going to be like anything else and I love that you bring up you know, even briefly, the idea of grief. And I think that that's very appropriate, right? It's appropriate to have like that grief period and that emptiness period. But then I love how your story really gives us a model of, yes, but then you will go through this kind of valley, right? And you will go through this grief, but there's there's some stuff on the other side of it, with which is just as rich and potentially 
richer because it doesn't have those tinges of, you know, like oppression and cultural appropriation. And, you know, um, it doesn't have that sort of like dark shadow side to it. Yeah. 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 I think um, grief about whiteness is really appropriate. <laughs> like I have grief I have immense grief about the ways that white supremacy has caused such harm um, to so many real human beings, like real people have been harmed by white supremacy, are continued to be continuing to be harmed by white supremacy as we speak. And I have immense grief about that, um, which is not the same thing as the kind of like hand-wringing, woe is me, oh, what shall we do kind of thing, right? It's like, it's deep, it's in there. And to feel like, to really like look that in the face, I think is, um, yeah, that, that feels like a call of this time, of this moment that we're in, that for white people who are aiming towards liberation, that we really have to look that grief in the face. And then I think like, simultaneous to that there's also the the grief of the things that uh that have been lost because of whiteness to to me and to my people right the ways that in the same way that like men suffer they lack emotional you know often lack the same kind of emotional skills and nuance uh because of patriarchy white people in similar ways have been uh have been cut off from ourselves and from our own spiritual practices you know if you look at basically anybody but like the British, but like, if you look at anybody from any European culture who like immigrated to the United States, who came to the, you know, came immigrated or colonized, right? But uh, depending on, depending on context, but basically like the process of assimilation into whiteness requires a, a giving up of, uh, of all the sort of embodied cultural practices that are, that people came here with. So I look back at my own lineage my own ancestry and I'm lucky as a Cajun person that we sort of we still have like a, a subculture that is alive and well um at least here in this very small pocket of South Louisiana where uh, where these things still exist but but basically you know you think about the songs and the music and the dancing and you know the language that your people spoke and the food that they made and you know all of that stuff is is bodies it's it's arms and legs and mouths and uh, you know feet and ears and uh and that those are the things that people gave up in order to become white you know like that's that's you sort of had to stop being whatever those things were in order to to step fully into the privileges of of whiteness um and so i grieve that loss also uh, that there there is this severing of 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 lineage and severing of practice, severing of connection to ourselves, to spirit, to body, um, so that then we just become these sort of like floating heads of of mm. where only intellect is allowed and only you know only thinking is allowed, no feeling, no bodies, um, and and that that's really uh, that's the price that's the price that white people paid that you know we traded our our practices for privilege we. Um, and so now at this, you know, at this juncture in my life, at this juncture in culture, in our time, uh, to me, it's like, okay, well, when the lineage is severed, you just have to get simple. You just have to get really simple where it's like, okay, I don't, uh, I don't know the, you know, I don't know the specific prayers that my, you know, way back ancestors would say, 
So I kind of make them up, <laughs> you know, and it's like, uh, it, I, I'm re, uh, reweaving some kind of, uh, lineage based practice, uh, and getting really simple with the rituals where it's like, okay, I'm just going to go and sit in the park and put my back against this tree and just breathe and just like be here. And to me, that's like just as useful as like, um, you know, sitting in Padmasana and, and, you know, chanting the Hanuman Chalisa or something, you know, it's like, I, I, to me, it's, it's the, the idea that, that those, that these sort of, um, stolen practices, borrowed practices, however, however you want to look at it, right. Like that these appropriated practices are in some way, like, uh, more, uh, potent more uh you know that they're that they're that they do something that like we couldn't that that that's just like impossible otherwise and that's not to denigrate in any way the the um utility of of yoga practice right but uh but to say that that's the only way that we can have a connection to spirit is through this thing the only way that i can i can connect to something larger is if i you know do these poses or sit in meditation or or do this kind of like formal practice that comes from a different culture, I think just really, uh, yeah, it's a failure of imagination. We haven't had any other experience, so we don't think any other experience is possible, but maybe it is. Yeah. You know, for me, what comes to mind when I hear you speak of, I'm just going to go and sit again, my, my back against this tree and just breathe and let that be enough. Right. Which is the, which is the, the piece that you didn't say, but that really kind of is part of this, this idea to me, what it, what it speaks to is really trusting our own channel and trusting our own connection. And, and I feel that that is something that ultimately we might end up missing if we're not actively seeking our own practices and our own rituals, is that trust in our own channel, right? It was just like, I need to borrow this channel. I need to borrow this way in. Um, and that, yeah, the more that we do that deep in our work and the more that we trust that I actually have access, which really can only come once we've examined all the systems of oppression, right? And, and once we start to sort of decolonize, right, ourselves, that's when we realize, oh, hey, I have all this power that has been taken away from me and I can use that power to connect to that larger container, right? And so I feel like it only, we have to go through the process, right? We have to go through the grief, which as you mentioned, I think is really necessary for us if our work is to be, um, potent and effective and ultimately sustainable because if we're not sitting in the grief then we're in the hand wringing and we're in the kind of surface piece right of like well what's going to be done and I think a lot of that surface crisis piece really is an unwillingness to sit with a deep grief of what is happening to our fellow humans <sighs> yeah I'm yeah just <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> just sitting with the richness of all of this. <laughs> and I think that like, just one more thought there about like the simplicity and like going towards simplicity is that it all like requires, um, it requires a, another level of like divestment pr from perfectionism uh, where when, when there is no form formula when there is no format when there is no way to do it right or wrong when you're sort of like making it up as you go 
you can't do it perfectly or you can only do it perfectly, right? There's either no such thing or no such thing as perfection or only perfection that's available. And so when I go and sit with my back against a tree and just breathe, I go like, am I doing it right? Is it, is it, is, you know, is this the way I'm supposed to be doing it? And it's like, but that's not, that's not, that's not a question that comes up, you know, like where in so many other contexts, we can get really hung up on like, am I doing it right? Is this the right way? Is this the, you know, is this the exact right thing? Um, where it's just like, yeah, there's, there's sort of no way to screw it up whenever you're just making it up as you go, which is kind of awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you're, if you're the authority, right, there's no external authority. If there's no external authority and there's nobody to tell you that you're doing it wrong or right, right. Which a lot of us really want, like, we really want to be told that we're doing the right thing. And so that that's part of, yeah, that's part of divesting of the whole system. Yeah. Um, any favorite resources that support your practice that you can share? And this can be a lot. I mean, you've talked about like making tea, it could be like products, practices, like folks that inspire you. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm really deep with the plants these days. So that's a, that's a part of it. Um, I, uh, portioned out some medicine for a friend this morning and it was really beautiful to, to go, oh yeah, I like, I helped to harvest this plant. I know the people who grew it, like, and to, to have that kind of deep relationship with, um, with not just that it feels, it feels different than like ordering a bulk bag of something elderberries off of amazon.com or whatever. <laughs> Then it feels really different to be like, uh, which is also fine. And I sometimes do that too, because, you know, because we live in an imperfect world. Um, but to, for me, like one of the resources is to just like connect with the plants that grow near you and to connect with the people who are growing those plants um, and to get like in deeper relationship with, with them in that kind of way. If plant medicine is the thing that you're into and it can, that again, can be super simple. You don't have to have like a whole apothecary. You can just like pick a couple of things that you like the way they taste and then like do some internet research about what they do. Um, and usually that like the more I listen, the more I am in connection, like the right plants just find me. Um, you know, I had a, uh, I had a thing recently this this spring where um, I was having a lot of like menstrual issues and then I just started seeing this plant flowering all over the place and I was like what is this what is this what is this and then I finally like looked it up online and and figured out what it was and it was Vitex which is like a plant mm -hmm. that's like indicated for menstrual issues and I was like okay cool thank you thanks <laughs> thank you <laughs> thank you Vitex for now seeing me and knowing me and knowing that I needed to notice you and it's funny because like I've lived in the same city for you know 14 years now and uh surely those plants have bloomed every year that I've been here and I just <laughs> never noticed them until this year which is pretty cool um yeah, I mean, otherwise, I don't, I'm like looking over my shoulder at my altar right now. <laughs> I'm like, what's on, what's on there? I like, I don't have a lot of fancy stuff. I, um, you know, I buy a uh, votive candles at the Botanica that are just like plain white. Um, you know, I have a few favorite crystals. Um, I really like my black tourmaline to keep my internet connection good. <laughs> <laughs> um, whenever the internet is weird, I'm like, I, I don't, I don't like, I don't know a lot about crystals, whatever, but I really believe in the power of that one. It's pretty funny, but it works. Like my internet gets weird when I'm having client calls and I just go grab the tourmaline and put it on my desk and it like fixes things somehow. Okay. Um, which is great. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I really am pretty, I'm pretty simple. I like burn a little incense. I pick rosemary from around the corner and like burn that um, because that's a plant that's been used historically, ancestrally in, um, in that way. Um, spend time in nature. That's a really good resource. Go outside, go to the park, make friends with the trees that grow on your block. I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I have like a lot of, and then also, I mean, like resources in terms of like the bigger picture stuff, I go like, just read everything you can about race and racism, read everything you can about um, systemic oppression. You know, I have such deep gratitude to all of the, you know, all of the scholars, Bell Hooks especially has been like hugely influential in my, my writing and my work. Um, and then, yeah, to just like find in-person communities. When I think about like, what are the resources that support me? I go like, oh yeah, like the people in real life who I know, who I see, who, who look me in the eye and hug me, um, who, are, who are also showing up for the work. Um, you know, a big piece of my liberatory development came through an organization called Alternate Roots. That's like an artist activist organization based in the deep South. Um, and I, I really, yeah, mad, mad props to them. Shout out big time to Alternate Roots for, for being that, that community. You know, when I spoke earlier about like being in real life with people who are like not willing to throw you away, who are willing for you to mess up and, and are willing to like have the hard conversations and, and get in the mud with you. Um, like that community has really been a huge part of that for me. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't have like a favorite. I'm sure other people on this podcast are going to talk about like their favorite. I don't know what their favorite tarot deck or something. Maybe. Like, what are I, don't say? I don't know. We I don't have, know. I haven't, I haven't recorded so many of them so far. Actually, the answers so far have been like fairly, fairly simple, which I think in and of itself is um, a really powerful message, right, to, to take away. Um, where can people go to find out more about you and about your work? Yeah. Um, my uh, website is uh, bearcoaches.com. Uh, my other website is undoingpatriarchy.com. Um, and both of those have ways to connect with me. Um, I'm on Instagram uh, at, at bear, a bear, and it's spelled, it's French, so it's spelled H-E-B-E-R-T. It looks like Hebert um, with a little underscore at the end. Uh, and um, Maybe you'll probably link that in the show notes. I will do. I have to get used to saying those those phrases now. We'll link that up in the show notes. Our Thai fancy. Yeah, um, and that's pretty much that's pretty much it. I'm not really on. Uh, I I have like a Facebook page, but I I never post there. So um, Instagram is my social place, and uh, my websites are are the places that you'll you'll find me and my my work and my writing. Also, if people want to read about. About, um, my journey away from yoga that's in a different that's on my old yoga website which is bearteachesyoga.com um, and so uh, the only things that are left on that website are the sort of like um, four extensive pieces of writing that I did about uh, about my my process around um, leaving yoga teaching and yoga practice so that's there for folks too which I uh, which I highly recommend um, that you check out and you go through and reading and if it makes you uncomfortable good keep reading <laughs> keep reading yeah. Yeah. um bear thank you so much this has been just an absolute delight and an absolute joy and um if everybody go check out bear's work um i love it when they get on um do a little in igtv stuff i always get um so much out of it um so 
yeah, Bear, Bear is one of the people that I, I look forward to seeing their posts the most. And so I encourage you to go and follow them. Thank you so much, Bear. Thank you. It's been, yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Sight Sing for me. For more information about the podcast, please visit my website, yinyogamagic.com slash podcast. This podcast is produced and edited by Les Weiler.